science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week, in honor of Father's Day, we're presenting stories about dads and the adventures they lead us on. When I was in middle school, we had a science fair, and for some reason, I decided that what I really wanted to do for my project was dissect a cow heart and a sheep heart and compare the two. I'm not sure exactly why, uh, but I had my heart set on it, no pun intended. I had no idea where one obtained animal hearts, but my dad was determined to make it happen for me, and after some negotiation at a slaughterhouse, managed to procure both hearts for me. Uh, And in case you're wondering, the difference between a cow heart and a sheep heart is this. The cow's heart is bigger, and that's basically it. (laughs) So maybe not an earth-shattering conclusion, but enough to win my third-place ribbon from the science fair. So thanks, Dad. Today's stories feature dads who led their kids on slightly higher-stakes science adventures. Our first story is from Gabrielle Duran. It was recorded in December 2018 at the Mortimer B. Zuckerman Research Center Auditorium in New York. This show was presented in collaboration with Memorial Sloan Kettering. As I made my way to the hospital, I was training at, at 5.30 in the morning on the last Friday of August of 2015, the biggest problem in my life was that I was sleep-deprived. Very sleep-deprived. But by the end of the day, it wouldn't be. You see, I was in my last year of medical school, and where I'm from, Colombia, our last year of medical school is also our intern year, which is the most demanding year of any medical training. And I was very deep into the most demanding rotation in my intern year, which was surgery. So I was getting to the hospital, and I did what I did every day. I called my dad. He ran a bit of land my family owned, six hours out of where we lived, and his farmer's dawn till dusk schedule, and my medical intern's dawn till God knows when schedule, meant that the only time we could talk was very early in the morning. They were usually short conversations, as he is your proverbial man of few words. How did you sleep? How was your day? Have a great day. But it was kind of a thing. Um, so I call him, and it rings, and goes to voicemail. And that is kind of unusual, but I don't think much of it. He's supposed to come home that night, so I'll just give him shit for it when I see him. And also, I've arrived at the hospital, and unless I get moving, I'm going to start my day getting chewed out by my attending. And I usually aspire to delay that until at least lunchtime. (laughs) It's three hours later, and I'm getting ready to go on rounds in the ER with the attending surgeon on call when I get a call. Probably my dad, right? Everyone else just texts these days. Uh, But it wasn't. It was actually a call from my home number. And on the other side of it is Merce, who has worked with my family since I was six months old. And she tells me, please try to stay calm, in a voice that very clearly wasn't. But it seems like your dad is missing, and we fear he might have been kidnapped. And I would like to say that my heart sunk, but the sensation was more of the walls of the room swallowing me whole. 
and I was flooded with questions. I mean, if you're familiar with Colombia, you know we have a troubled past as a country, and this was actually not that infrequent in the 90s, but this was 2015. Things were supposed to be better. Things were better. How could this possibly be happening right now? I was flooded with these and other questions that Merce was in no capacity to answer because she didn't know. So I hung up and I called my mother, to whom my dad unironically refers to as the head of our household. And she was actually here in New York City at the time, helping one of my sisters move apartments. So damn be the international fees, I call her up and is there anything you need me to do? Do I have to call, go, do anything? And she tells me that not right now. She's talking to the right people, making the right calls. We don't know much. We know that his silver ram truck was found halfway between our house in the farm and the main road. And that there were three sets of boot prints le leading from the car to a river. And that's pretty much it. She will let me know if she needs me to do anything, but at the moment, just stay close to the phone. And it was probably shock taking over, but I thought that the best thing I could do was pretend and carry on with my day as if nothing was happening. Because I felt that if I could hold on to a bit of normality, that would allow me to keep it together. This didn't take me very far though, because then I get a call from my other sister, Ana Lucia. I have three older sisters. Yes, I know, God bless me. And she is in town, as I am, and she doesn't want to be alone. And that's when it hit me that this just wasn't happening to me or my dad or my mom. This was happening to all of my family at the same time. And if the best I could do was keep my sister company, that was exactly what I had to do. So I pick her up and we go home and we sit and try not to freak out every time the phone rings and it wasn't really easy. The next day, my mom and other sister make their way back to Bogota and my sister stay at home while we travel to the biggest city near where my father was taken. There we are taken to the headquarters of the police's anti-extortion task force and we meet Lieutenant Alexander Barreto, who we are told is in charge of our case and who we are profusely told is the best in his line of work and that we are in very good hands which I couldn't help but think was funny because it's something I, as a medical student and fake doctor, told patients all the time. And I can tell you right now, being on the receiving end, not great. <laughs> and he tells us that his plan and his team is committed to getting our father back to us, safe and sound, without us paying anyone anything. And that all seems well and good. And he turns to my mother and asks her if she's been contacted yet. And she says she has not, probably because my father, and by extension, the kidnappers, think she's still out of the country. Good, he says. Please turn off your cell phones. If they can't contact you, they can't pressure you, and that'll afford us time. And time is the most valuable thing you can give us right now. If they contact anyone else, please have them direct them to contact Gabriel. We can, we're here, we'll coach him with what to say. And almost as if on cue, my phone starts ringing and it's my sister who came back with my mother from New York. And she is, to put it mildly, upset. And it's hard to make out what she's saying, but I managed to pull out the words, my father called the house. It's the only number he knows by heart. I didn't know what to do. I told him to call you. And 
we haven't even hung up, and I already have an incoming call from an unknown number. I show it to the lieutenant, and he says, yeah, that's them. Please put it on speaker. And what follows is one of the most bizarre, jarring conversations I've had with my father in my entire life. As I told you before, he is a man of few words, but his tone is usually one that conveys calm and wisdom and, you know, fatherly things. This time, his tone is anxious and his sentences are a lot shorter than they usually are. Where is your mother? We need that money. I've worked something out. And on the other end of that, they are handing me all kinds of slips of paper with things to say and things to ask, and she's trying to make it back home, that, but she hasn't been able to, and how can we get that money if she isn't here? Please try to have them have some patience. And I feel like I am putting on the worst amateur theater performance ever with everything on the line. Turns out it wasn't as bad as I thought, because uh, after a few rounds of this, the kidnappers via my father instructs us to keep trying to get a hold of my mother and tell us that they will call us back in three hours. Gabriel, my father says to me as he is about to hang up, which was a bit jarring to begin with because he never calls me by my full name. If that money isn't here tomorrow, they are going to kill me. Three hours come and go and we don't get a call and I am mildly worried. And the people from the police force are quick to tell us that this is a common tactic kidnappers employ to generate distress, and distress they very much degenerate. So they start to regale my mother and I with stories of past successes and family reunifications to calm us down, but I tune out. I start thinking about my dad and whether they're treating him well and whether I'm going to get to see him again and hug him again and whether I said something I probably shouldn't have and got him killed. And I'm spiraling in these thoughts when a vibration in my pocket japs me out of it and it is another call from them and here we go again. They apply pressure, I do my best to evade. And this goes on for two days. My mother and I shuttling back and forth between the police headquarters and our hotel room. Monday is the third day, and on Monday they tell us it's time to give them something so my mother can turn her phone back on. It's time for her to shoulder the calls. And I can't help but have very, very mixed feelings about this because I am so relieved that I don't have to listen to my kidnapped father again. But now my mother has to, and I feel terrible giving this burden to her. But she is the rock of her household and just her voice in any situation calms me down and I'm sure it'll calm him down and I try to cling to this. And things keep moving forward and we manage to arrange for a partial drop, a down payment of a sort, if you will, in which we are going to give them some of the money they are asking for in exchange for my dad being released and we promise to make ensuing payments. And that's all well and good except that the moment of the drop on Tuesday night comes and the person the kidnappers instructed to help them pick up the money doesn't show up. And now it's midnight on Tuesday and we have no idea what's going on. And we are in our hotel room after my mother has gone to be stood up by this person. And I'm losing my mind. 
and the police agents are painfully calm. And this reminds me of every time I've told patients that everything's been done as it should and that they should just be calm. And I can't help but think about how I hate being on the receiving end again. And I just start seething with rage because it's not their fault. But why are they so calm when I'm not? And at about 1 a.m., one of the police agents turns to us and tells us that we need to go down to the headquarters again because we might need to make a decision. And I should probably mention that when we met Lieutenant Barreto at the first time, he told us that if they ever saw an opportunity where they could have an operation and extract my father with 100% chance of success, they would take it. No questions asked. If they saw it not so high in their success rate, they might consult us into the decision they're making. And that's what I have in my head as we're going to the headquarters. And we get there, and this old, unassuming brick house is just teeming with activity. There are more lights than I have seen and more people than I have seen around it in the last five days of my life, which feel like five years. And I look at all this and I think, decision my ass, something's happened. And they lead us into this room, which is just full of all kinds of divisions of agents. I have never seen so many shades of green. And right there in the middle of them, sporting the same Levi's 503 jeans that he does every time he goes to the farm and wearing a very ugly five-day beard is my father. And I have no idea what's going on, but I don't really care. I just run up and hug him. Turns out that while all this madness with the drop and everything was going on about 100 miles away, a police reconnaissance vehicle had unexpectedly come closer to where they were holding him than they thought. When the kidnappers saw the headlights from afar, they, I believe the technical term is freaked out, and ran, leaving him there with the promise of subsequent payments. So they had picked him up and taken him to where we were, and it was police protocol, or in my vision, intolerable cruelty, to not mention that that had happened until we were in the same room. And the next day, we make our way back home, as my father should have on his own five days earlier, and we try to get a little bit of normality back. And... I blink, and it's a year later, and it's once again the end of August, 2016 this time, and I'm no longer an intern, I've graduated, I'm a full-fledged doctor under the eyes of Colombian law, and I am now packing my bags, and I'm trying to fit as much of my life as I can into a single suitcase. Something like the kind of thing that happened to us with my father is the type of thing that makes you pause in life and really think hard about what you're doing, what you want, and how life can turn on 10 words. And I th thought that it was a moment for me to really assess what I wanted to do and where I wanted to move forward in life as a doctor and a human being. And the opportunity came up to come and do research in brain cancer here at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which was something I had always been fascinated with, so I took it. And I was flying out the next day, start a new life in New York. Um, I know you're probably wondering, but about six months prior to that, they had eventually caught up with guys, cut them, tried them, and they were serving and still are a sentence in jail. So I finished packing my bags, and I sit down at my parents' bedside with a bottle of champagne that they, they did not know we owned, and three glasses, 
and we toast to the fact that a year ago we were faced with the most literal manifestation of evil the world has thrown at us, and that we beat it. Then in a very short period of time, with very real stakes, relying on each other and with a bit of luck, we had been able to develop hostage negotiation and other skills we never thought we would need to overcome the biggest problem the world had ever thrown at us. And that's something I've kept with me in the two years that I've been a postdoc here at MSK, especially transitioning from a life in Spanish to a life in English and to a clinical life to a research life. Every time a three-week experiment fails, or every time I have to pick up a new set of skills, I remember the time that I had to really quickly, and with real stakes, pick up a set of skills. And uh, I feel marginally less frustrated. And I also remember the important things, like calling my dad every morning, which I still do. And they're still pretty short conversations. How was your bike ride to work? How did you sleep? Everything's fine. And he asks me how things are going in the lab. And I usually tell him that, you know, science is hard. Like, really, really hard. And he always laughs and replies the same thing. Of course it is. Otherwise, you wouldn't be the guy for the job. Thank you. That was Gabrielle Durant. Gabriel describes himself as a huge nerd and a pathological optimist. He is currently making full use of both those characteristics as a research fellow in the Vivian Tabar Lab at MSKCC, where his work focuses on the development of a novel real-time drug screening platform for primary brain tumors using patient-derived three-dimensional explant cultures. He obtained his MD from Universidad de los Andes in his native city of Bogota, Colombia. Our next story today is from Minerva Contreras. It was recorded in November 2018 at Jokesters 22 in San Antonio, Texas. The show was presented in collaboration with SACNIS and their 2018 National Diversity in STEM Conference. The theme that night was courage. Growing up, I always had a feeling something was odd with my dad. Some days, my mom would pick me up from school and we would drive to this coffee shop where we could always find him. My dad spent every day there, all day, just reading. When I was a kid, I even thought that was his job. Um, Because he spent the whole day there, Sometimes he would get home really late, and I would stay up past my bedtime to be able to hang out with him for a couple of minutes. My parents got divorced when I was 11, and after that I would hang out with my dad once a week, then once a month, and then less and less often. I was 20 years old when I got a call from my dad saying he needed to see me. He sounded really agitated on the phone. And I had not heard from him in over a year because he was talented and suddenly disappearing on me. (laughs) Um, Even though I knew I was going to miss class, I knew I had to go see him. So I drove 150 miles south from my art school in Los Angeles and across the border to Tijuana to go see him. When I got there, I rang the doorbell and he came rushing out. 
This was the house that I grew up in, but like I said, my dad loved coffee shops, so every time we would meet, we would meet at a coffee shop. I had not been there in years. And he came rushing out. He seemed out of himself. And I asked him, what do you want to do? He didn't respond. So I said, can I come in? He said, do you really want to? And I said, sure, trying to ease the tension. We went in the house, and he gave me a four-hour tour of the house. This was not a mansion. This was a small house. <laughs> and, but he, smoking cigarette after cigarette, he meticulously pointed out every stain on the floor, every stain on the walls. The, the house was such a mess, one could have easily assumed a hurricane hit it. We carefully walked around every little piece of paper on the floor, every piece of trash, so as not to alter anything. And he talked about the meaning behind these things. He said, I'm not crazy, Mini. You have to believe me. He kept saying. He had deciphered the subtext to every single one of these things. They were out to get him. And everything in his house had been carefully placed there as a sign by them. I was clueless. I did not know what to do with any of this. Um, but I did not question him because I had a feeling that he really needed someone to listen to this about him. He needed someone to share this with. So I felt so confused. And then I left thinking, my father, the person who's supposed to be my role model, has lost his mind. I got in my car and I drove about two blocks away before I had to park and I burst out into tears. I felt so powerless, so confused, and so worried. I gathered myself and drove home with only one thing on my mind. I had to help him out of this weird black hole. So what is the mind? How can anyone lose it? How does the brain work? What is a neuron? What is the biology behind the brain malfunction? All these and so many more questions arose in my mind, and I knew there had to be a scientific explanation to what was happening to my dad. I was in art school at the time, as I mentioned, but all I did with my free time was read about the brain. I knew I had to go to the bottom of it, so the brain books were not going to be enough. I needed a science career, obviously. <laughs> so I moved to San Diego, and I enrolled in a community college with the intent to transfer to university and pursue a scientific career. And I am no psychiatrist, and especially I was not a psychiatrist back then, or a neuroscientist, yet. <laughs> But I eventually hypothetically diagnosed my dad with paranoid schizophrenia. One of the symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia is having grandiose delusions. So add that, add that to being an older Mexican man or a macho. <laughs> um, older Mexican men don't get sick. They're almighty, invincible beings. They don't need help in finding directions. They have no struggles. And <laughs> losing your mind is something that can only happen to women. So talking to my dad about the way he was acting or feeling was completely out of the question. 
Before I could even talk to him about this, I had to figure out a way to interact with him. Because like I said, we would meet in coffee shops, at this time about once a month. And sometimes we would just be having a conversation and I would do something as simple as this, like fixing my hair, and he would simply get up and leave. Sometimes he would say, what did you just tell them? And he would leave. So I had to learn how to provide a safe space for him. I could not look away. I had to have my eyes on him 100% of the time. I could not cross my arms. I could not cross my legs. I could not scratch my nose if I had an itch. I could not fix my hair. And it was really hard. But one beautiful delusion of my dad was that he claimed he had a he could communicate with birds, and they were on his side, which was a good thing. <laughs> um, sometimes when he was driving down the road, birds would warn him about accidents on the road, or at the coffee shop, they would warn him about suspicious people. I would tell him, well, I hope the birds like me, and he would laugh. I tried to provide an environment for him where he did not feel misunderstood or judged but it became really hard, like I said. Sometimes we would have good dates, but most of our dates were really difficult and ended up on a bad note. He really needed me to be a daughter and to listen to him and to believe everything he said, and I pretended to do so. But at the same time, I had to quiet my problem-solving scientific self, and I had to keep learning about paranoid schizophrenia or mental illnesses and I wasn't really able to do anything about it because I wanted him to go see a professional. As far as I understood then, you could, there are symptoms that can be treated to help someone with, her, with paranoid schizophrenia have a better life. But it became impossible. Every time I told him, you should go see a doctor, he would simply get up and leave. And statistics say about 40% of people with, kids, with schizophrenia in Mexico do not get diagnosed because they deny being ill. One time, we were at a coffee shop, and I was so sick of his harmful words or just simply getting up and leaving that I stood up and I told him, I'm your daughter. Why would I be conspiring against you? Why would I do anything to hurt you? And he kind of paused and stared at me. And he had this look on his face like he wanted to believe me, but... I don't think he could. So, one day, September of last year, I got a call from my brother. He said, my dad was not feeling good. He had been cuffing blood for two weeks and he was taking him to see a doctor. Like I said, my dad did not trust anyone. So the simple, the simple fact that he was going to see a doctor was a Big shock for me. At the time, I was in school in Querétaro. That's a different story. <laughs> and I had to fly to Tijuana to go see him. I actually don't remember buying the ticket. I bought a round trip, a round trip which makes no sense, because I did not know what was going to happen. And when I got there, my girlfriend picked me up from the airport, and we drove straight to the hospital. 
It was around 11 p.m., so past visiting hours, and I called my brother and I said, is it convenient if I go now or should I wait till the morning? I would always get really nervous when I was going to see my dad, and it had been over a year. And my brother simply said, come, he's excited to see you. I said, okay. So I got there, and seeing my dad in a hospital gown, in a hospital bed, with probably below 8% body fat, was a huge shock. He seemed really tired. His skin seemed ashy. And I had a feeling, just by looking at him, it was cancer. So I knew I had to mentally prepare for it. And I had some scientific knowledge on cancer. I thought, this can help. Um, and I realized scientific knowledge can help you better understand a disease, how it will progress, and what to expect. But it does very little to help you prepare for the emotional impact. I like to think that I was one of the few people, or maybe the only one, who got closest to understanding what was wrong with my dad. I was one of the only few that understood that he could be the nicest, funniest, most charming person in the room for a minute, and the next second he would flip and become a really rude man. And I like to think he knew. On our very last conversation, he told me, you should try and not be so stubborn. Things aren't always the way you think they are. To this day, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> I told him that I had found my passion for science because of him, and I thanked him for that. That I have a huge need to understand everything because I have a deep need to understand him. My dad passed away before I had a clear perspective of what he went through. And it took me a while, but I came to peace with being able to understand that I was never going to be able to understand completely. And as a scientist, this is completely out of my league. I need the explanations. I wanted my dad's mental illness to fit into a box with specific locks. And I wanted to be able to find the keys to these locks, to find what was inside, to be able to discover what he was going through. And I wanted him to help me find the keys. But for my dad, there was nothing wrong with him. His reality was completely different than mine. For my dad, there was no box. Thank you. That was Minerva Contreras. Minnie is a senior at Universidad Autonoma de Querétaro, where she is majoring in biotechnology engineering with a focus in biomedical sciences. Her undergrad research has led her to explore different areas within neurobiology, such as the molecular biology of glioblastoma at UTMD Anderson Cancer Center and neurodegenerative diseases at UCSD Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine. Before discovering her passion for science, Minnie completed an AA in filmmaking. 
Her future goals include pursuing a doctoral degree in neurosciences, as well as creatively communicating science to the general public. The Stork Writer is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Mariam Zaringhalem, and Liz Neely, with help from Fiona Calvert. Podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Jokesters 22 and Memorial Sloan Kettering for hosting these shows, and to all the dads out there who have raised scientists. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.